You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. My guest is Scott Simon, not the NPR Scott Simon, uh, but Scott Simon, who is a happiness entrepreneur and the founder of Scare Your Soul and the author of a new book, Scare Your Soul, Seven Powerful Principles for Harnessing Fear and Living Your Most Courageous Life. This was a great conversation. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Scott Simon, welcome to the show. Kelly, thank you so much. You start your new book with a story of tackling a 35-year-old fear. Can you tell us about that fear and, and what happened? Sure. So... Uh, and your listeners may may have a, a similar moment in 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 the backstory of their lives. When I was in fourth grade, a choir teacher called me out in front of the entire grade. We were preparing for our holiday concert, and we were going to sing seventy six trombones as our extravaganza to end. And I do not have a good singing voice, and I could not get the pitch right. And he would get angrier and angrier. And finally, I think I'm on the third time he flipped his lid and he ran towards me. I remember he was wearing this bright Hawaiian shirt with palm trees on it. And he ran towards me. His face was all red. And he said to me, you cannot sing. I would like for you to uh, mouth the words for the rest of the year. Hmm. And I look back on it now and it sounds humorous, but at the, at the time in that moment, I was like a statue. I couldn't move. I turned bright red and I come from a very musical family and I used to love to sing. And from that moment on, I didn't sing again for 35 years. That one coming. So so 
that's terrible. Um, and, and I, and I, I mean, my, my story from there and I never did it was I got a bully knocked me off my bike when I was learning to ride a bike yes. and I have never ridden a bike in my life. Yes. So it, it, we're going to get you back on that bike by the end of this. Are conversation. We? <laughs> yes, we are. Um, so, and I'll, and I'll explain to you why. So, yes. so I, for 35 years, I mean, I would go to concerts with friends and they would be singing at the top of their lungs and I would be mouthing words. Literally that one comment, um, you know, kind of changed everything for me. So I had done some work in positive psychology. I met a wonderful guy at Harvard who was teaching positive psychology. And I had created an organization that really encouraged people to push comfort zones and do surprising things in life. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to I'm not going to deal with this demon anymore. I'm, I'm tackling this head on. So my way of doing that was to grab a guitar mm-hmm. and to visit a very busy restaurant on a Sunday morning, you know, when the brunch crowd is out the front door. And I pulled out my guitar and I saw this look of annoyance and <laughs> near anger coming from the coming from the patrons. And I started to sing and the anger and annoyance even got greater when they, when they yeah. heard my voice, <laughs> but within a couple of minutes, I won the crowd over and I, I did it. I think because I was real in that moment, it was just a guy um, expressing himself. And for me, it was so much deeper and so much greater. And a young, I remember a young kid ran and threw a, a dollar bill into my case and everybody cracked up. And it was, a, it was this amazing kind of experience. And, and I, I remember when I finished and I closed my guitar case and I, I started walking back to my car and there was this feeling inside of me of power and freedom and joy and, and, and I wanted more of that. I wanted more of that feeling. And I wrote a Facebook post about the experience and I tend to be like an inviter. I want, I want yeah. people to benefit from the things that I think are great. And so I said, you know, if you, if you want to do something courageous next week, you know, do something yourself next weekend. And the post went viral and mm-hmm. was shared around the world. And I had people emailing me and messaging me about courageous acts. And that was the beginning of an organization that I I started called Scare Your Soul. It all began with a, a single awful performance um, that freed me up in a way that I could have never expected. So I'm guessing, well, I'll ask you, did you, um, prior to this, had you met my pal, Allison Woodbrooks, or was this afterwards? No, no, I had not wow. actually. Because <laughs> that, I mean, that's her, that's one of her famous studies, right? Is getting people up to do this karaoke singing. And, and I remember we, uh, Allison, we spent a weekend, well, we spent a lot of time with her, but uh, it all started with a, a weekend where a number of academics wanted to visit Second City and basically be taught a little bit about comedy and improv. And um, we, so much about our work is about getting people out of their judgment and fear brain um, yes. and recognizing that you can't make it all go away. So we find ways to use it. Um, and so as I'm reading your book, it just tracks so much with what are the sort of really fundamental things that stand in the way of our ability to flourish as human beings. And it's self-judgment and it's shame and it's fear yes. and, and all yes. those things. And 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 I think you're very honest in the book of like, it's not like, like it's been easy for you or that those things aren't present. It's just, you have to develop practices in order to incorporate them right in, into your life. There is this whole segment of self-help right now that is crush your fear, destroy your fear, annihilate your fear, 10 steps to, you know, 
conquer your fear, you know, and become a, a fearless person. And I think it's all crap. I really do. I, I think it's it not only is it not realistic, it is false because we we need fear in our lives, right? Like fear keeps us safe. Fear yeah. protects us from things that could hurt us or hurt the, the people that we love. Um, but fear also holds us back. So what, what I became really fascinated by is what is that process of determining how you can, you know, what what's safe and unsafe and how can we really push through those fake toxic fears as, as you guys do when you're on stage yeah. um, or as we both shared before in real life, because real, yeah. there is no script in real life. And when you walk out the door in the morning, it is an unscripted performance. You don't know what's going to happen. No. So my belief is if we can approach that with an air of zest, with an air of wanting to dance with our fears rather than annihilating them, then you start leading your life in a really curious and interesting way. And what you guys do on stage, I love to encourage people to do in real life. So we both have same. our kind of our yeah. stages. No, 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 same. Yeah. And, you know, and so much of it is just is saying yes to life and then yes. And, and, and that to me leads to a, a, a fun, fulfilling, flourishing life. And who doesn't want that? You write in the book that as a child, your chosen superpower would have been to be invisible, um, which was sad. And, and you didn't have a great childhood, right? Yeah. I, I, you know, part of writing this book and, and this book really, I didn't really even choose to write this book. I, 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 I had an editor reach out to me and say, I love the work that you're doing. Would you like to write a book for this uh-huh. incredible publishing house? And with me as your editor, and I had to look at myself in the mirror and say, am I ready to tell my stories? Am I really, am I ready to pull up the covers? And because you, you can't, you can't write a book and be fake. You can't, no one would buy it. No one would care. And I wouldn't want to do it anyway. And I had this momentary thought of, do I really want to do this? And then very quickly, I decided, hell yes, I want to do this. And uh, and it began this whole process of having to look back and and see those things in my life that that were really hard and and hurtful and 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 my realization was and this is you know I, I'm I hope you feel the same way that it is many of those same things that are fueling me today you know I, I was bullied and 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 I was shy and I was short and I was picked last for every athletic you know endeavor. The memory of that pushes me now to want to make my life better and to make other people's lives better. And I have empathy for humanity, and which is such an underrated concept in today's world, you know, where everyone's on the attack. Right. And, and it takes courage to be empathetic and to, and to care about people who may not care about you or, or listen to people who may not agree with you. And in my mind, all of that takes courage. The easiest thing to do is to stay in our silo, to stay in our comfort zone, to stay in our bubble. What you guys do and what your listeners do is you put yourself out there into the crazy unknown where something is going to happen and you're going to have to make a choice and you're going to have to make a decision. And and I love that. That's the kind of life I want. and And I love creating challenges and opportunities for people to do that in their own lives. 
Yeah. And I think especially for like the students who've gone through what they've gone through in the last few years, really hard, really hard time. And I I mean, my son was lucky. Actually, he went to Skidmore where you went. Pardon me. And he just, you know, it was basically a little, he lost the last two months and then he was a great, he graduated. So that not as bad as some of some of the other kids, but actually Skidmore, it feels like while you didn't necessarily have a great time there as a college student, but it was that, that leap that came afterwards. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a great story. If you can tell that. <laughs> I'm happy to. So I graduated from the great Skidmore college. It, it is a wonderful place in a wonderful town, but my fears were still getting the best of me and I was feeling really unworthy and, and had a lot of self-doubt. And while most of my friends graduated with a job, with a plan, you know, when you spend four or five, four years in college, five years for me, you know, you usually have a sense as to kind of where you're going. And I didn't, I had, I had no idea what to do. I was working in the alternative aisle of a of a record shop and um, and going nowhere fast, although I love music and I, I loved, you know, that experience. But but it was it was due to not feeling good about myself. And I had an opportunity to go to another country to fly to Israel to teach English to Holocaust survivors. Hmm. And I said yes to it, but immediately regretted it. I mean, I thought, how can I do I can barely even speak to people in 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 the United States, in English, how am I going to go to another country and do this? And so I got on this flight from JFK to Tel Aviv and I had a panic attack. I, I literally lost it. I, I, I thought, how can I do this? And I, I'm, you know, all of that old stuff started to bubble up and bubble up. And I had a little Mead spiral notebook. Remember those Mead spiral yeah, notebooks? Yeah. And I had it in my backpack and I, I pulled it out. It was under the seat and I pulled it out and I opened it up and I, I uncapped a pen and completely unconsciously, I wrote out eight words, do one thing every day that scares you. Mm-hmm. And I kind of sat there <laughs> and looked at what I had just written, which came from a very deep place. And I realized that what that meant was for the next year that I was going to be there to do one thing that pushed my comfort zone every single day. And that is exactly what I did. And I cataloged them in that Mead spiral notebook. Mm -hmm. And that changed my life. That year, you know, Shonda Rhimes wrote a great book called The Year of Yes. I had my own year of yes, and it changed everything for me. And now I lead my life saying yes. And that means to fear and to opportunity and to risk and to joy and all of the, and the intricacies of life um, in a way that I never could have when I was, or I chose not to, when I was young with that little kid who wanted to be invisible, I'm not invisible anymore. And I, and I love helping people take off that cloak of invisibility because that's where the best parts of life are. That's when you're really leading life to the fullest. And you, I mean, you did some stuff that like I wouldn't do, but it, but it, it doesn't necessarily have to be skydiving. My, my friend, uh, Neil Stevenson, who used to work for IDEO, he has a bunch of these exercises, which is like, go into a magazine store and buy a magazine that you never have read before. So yep. just, just these, it can be a very slight discomfort, a slight, you know, uh, a scare or whatever. But any one of those little acts, if you make that part of your practice, like, like anything, 
it it pays off in terms of your just your mindset and it's, and it's your mindset to everything right this is in relationships this is in friendships this is in work absolutely and i'm so glad that you brought up the the fact that these are small acts um I once made the the um, observation, and I did jump out of an airplane at 14,000 yeah. feet, and I do have a fear of heights. But in, in my view, spending four days on a ladder cleaning out your gutter will get you further than jumping out of a plane at 14,000 feet. I yeah. really sincerely believe that. It is, it is the small, consistent acts of pushing comfort zones that works our courage muscle that that gets us living life and connecting with life in a way that is vibrant. And when stuff really hits the fan, when we're, we're when there is indeed a moment of crisis, which will happen, happen, right? It will happen. You have this, you have this self-perception of being a courageous person. Mm-hmm. You know, you can step up to that moment and, and the crisis may not, you know, necessarily even be like a health crisis or losing a job. It could be, needing to stand up for somebody in the moment who is being, you know, berated or beaten down or their idea was just laughed at or, or, or they're being denigrated for who they are or what they look like. And you, that, that moment is the, is that mo- is the moment where courage is required. And if you just spent six months every single day doing one little thing, right? Like getting that magazine or, yeah. you know, I, our famous challenge is buying a cup of coffee for a stranger and having a conversation while you're waiting for the cup of coffee, mm-hmm. which as I was thinking about this conversation with you is it's, that is improv that, what, that experience is improv. And I love that moment of not knowing, like, are they going to say yes? Are they going to say no? What's the conversation going to be like? Who's going to be around you and who's going to notice and there's so much beauty in that moment of not knowing, and it all either begins or ends with an act of courage. You either do it and act courageously, or you shrink back and you don't. And in that case, you miss out on what could be an unbelievable experience. And and it's such a metaphor on life, but it's it's such a truism. It's such a truism. And there's a rich vein of science that supports this, that, that talks about <clears throat> people tend not to self-disclose. And then, and, and, and then people actually, they have regret when they don't act. And this whole foundational idea of yes and is, you know, this, this idea in behavioral economics that our default position is to do nothing or say no. That is totally. the way. I, there's some fascinating research I just read, and it was uh, studying three-year-olds and four-year-olds who are at home with their mom, <clears throat> that they ask a question about 26 times per hour. And mo- most of those, I think it's 60% of the time, it's about learning something. Yes. Uh, the, the stat when they go to school, two questions. Amazing. I mean, this is, so, so what I think we need to understand is these are powerful forces that yes. are baked into us through education yes. and through, through, through the systems that we, that we have. So we have work to do to get to the other side. Absolutely. And I'd like to layer on top of that. I agree with everything you just said. And there's another layer, which is this attachment we have to outcome. Yes. You know, in in our society, right? Like, I'm going to do A, you know, if I do A and B, C is going to be my outcome. And I want that outcome, right? Whatever that outcome is, I want that outcome. And what I tell our participants in Scare Your Soul is, the action is the outcome. 
not what happens afterwards, because we can't control what happens afterwards. And what happens afterwards may be hard. It may be challenging. It may be beautiful. It may be revelatory. We don't know. And that's, you know, that's that, that tipping point. Um, But if we can start to shift from, I'm going to do this at work and this at work, because I want that promotion to gosh, there's someone two offices down from me that I don't know and kind of intimidates me. Like when he talks, he's so smart. And Mm -hmm. I I haven't really gotten to know this guy. I'm going to ask him out for a cup of coffee and, and feeling okay with that as your outcome, the action as the outcome. And then whatever happens afterwards is what the universe will, will provide. Usually I think the outcomes are great because when we push comfort zones, usually something intriguing and unexpected happens and it makes us better, richer human beings. But in my mind, it's really about, can we focus on the action, the consistent action and let that be okay. And actually let that be amazing. Yeah. I think that the the most innovative people I've ever worked with are completely process oriented. Uh, and, and they recognize even within that process that, that, you know, things are, are maybe not going to go one way or another. But if you, if you recognize that we're all works in progress, um, at, at any given time that again, it's a mindset, uh, that will allow you, I think, to, to, to have more success in life. So one of the cool things about this book is the various stories you tell about some people, clients and such. Can you, you introduce us to Joanna, who grew up in the LA? area in the 1970s was acting and was in the art scene, did <laughs> improv with the groundlings. Can you she tell did. us her story? She did. So th- this is actually one of my favorite stories in the book. And Johanna, indeed, she grew up in LA. Her dad was an agent. Her mom was a writer. And she would go to the Lakers games with her dad. And while her dad would focus on the players, she was entranced by cheerleaders. She just, she was a performer herself, as you just said. Mm -hmm. uh, And she loved this whole experience of watching cheerleaders. She would create little running play-by-play commentaries in her own mind. Like, oh, wow, what an awesome flip that was. It could have been a little bit better, but, you know, if there was one more turn, but yeah, yeah, you know, and she would do this in her own head. And this whole concept of becoming a cheerleader just became this passion of hers. Well, through a combination of, not necessarily having the, you know, the body type that was acceptable um, in, in, in her school. And then she ended up changing schools where there weren't cheerleaders. And she really was never able to fulfill that, that dream. And when I met her, she was in her early fifties. She was divorced. She had just suffered a bout of lymphoma. She was in remission, but she was exhausted and beaten down and, She was a nurse and she was spending time with patients in horrendous situations. She would actually spend her own hard-earned money to buy supplies and, and, and things to keep her patients safe and clean and, and happy. Just the warmest hearted person, but living a really, really tough existence. And I had just started Scare Your Soul. I had sung in front of my restaurant and Scare Your Soul was starting to hum. And she said to me, I want to do a challenge. And her first challenge that she came up with was dancing with a snake. She wanted to dance with a snake. And I said, you know, I want, I want more for, from you. I, I want you to choose something that is going to unlock something deeper in you than dancing with a snake. And she thought about it and she came back to me and she said, I am freaking out. I just placed a call to the athletic director at a high school 
And I asked if I could be a cheerleader for a day and she was losing it. And I thought it was the greatest thing. And then she thought it was the greatest thing when 20 minutes later, she got a phone call back from the athletic director who said, absolutely love to have you. Um, The girls in the cheerleading squad all agreed and they voted unanimously to have Johanna join them for a week. And she uh, trained and she was uh, she was preparing for the homecoming game, which was the, the game that she was going to cheer at. And then the day of she had this crazy crisis of confidence in the bathroom at the high school. She thought, there is no way I can do this. This is crazy. Um, my kids are going to get mocked. I mean, she really was going to, you know, was just losing it. And so she tells the story that she walked out. She was she was literally just going to run home. And something inside her said, do it, do it, keep walking. And she kept walking with her, these (laughs) 16, 17, 18 year old cheerleaders. She's 53 at the time. She walked out onto the field and she describes walking all the way to the center of the football field and turning around. And the announcer was announcing who she was and why she was there. And one by one, she got a standing ovation from the entire crowd. Come on. And she has a picture on her phone, which is of her and a football player who begged her to take a photo with her. Mm-hmm. And that is the photo that she shows herself when she needs to remind herself to be courageous. That's so great, right? Um, there's a really interesting <clears throat> section of the book, and this is something I've talked about in the podcast and had people on specifically. Um, and it's it's around this idea of how fear works in our bodies. And uh, Annie Murphy Paul is a favorite guest of mine. And, and she, she had a book that is all about how we get thinking wrong. And, and one of her big things is the fact that the body does way, way more <laughs> in terms of this. So it's not like we're thinking and then the, it's the opposite way. So talk a little bit about your, like, how'd you get interested in that area? Was that before you started the company? And, and let, let's, let's sort of poke around in that world. Sure. So I, was at a yoga retreat in Massachusetts, getting ready to attend this kind of a rock star yogi weekend. And I was told last minute that there was a booking error and that it had sold out. And I was, I I had to find another program. So I was pretty ticked off. I went down to the front desk and I said, you know, what else do you have going on this weekend? They had a number of programs and the the very kind person behind the desk said, well, this is sold out and this is sold out and this is sold out. There's one uh, weekend class with a professor teaching the science of happiness. Mm. And I kind of went, eh, but I signed up for it. Um, my girlfriend at the time and I signed up for it and and, and we went and it was this gentleman, Tal Ben-Shahar, who at yeah. that time was at Harvard And within about 15 minutes, I knew that I had found the passion of my life. Mm. And the reason that I love positive psychology so much is it marries science with practice, with theology, and it, and it focuses on the good life, the flourishing life. And it's not to say that um, study and, and practice in anxiety and depression and schizophrenia are not worthwhile. Of course they are, but nobody was studying happy people. 
And this was a group of really smart people. So I started to geek out on the science. Like, what is it that actually makes us happy? And what is it that happens in our bodies that betrays us Mm -hmm. as we're trying to do the things that actually make us happy. And one of those things that you're, you stated it exactly right is our fear response. Yeah. Because when a stimulus, when, when, when we perceive a stimulus, whether it's a bear charging at us or a Volkswagen driving towards us or somebody telling us that we, you know, we have to do something or running into somebody that, that we have a rough relationship with in a grocery store, the stimulus happens so fast that our body begins to react before our mind can really process it. Yeah. And just knowing that is one where you're one step ahead of the game because it allows you to slow down. And, you know, there's that famous phrase between um, stimulus and response. There's a choice, you know, there's a, yeah. there's a moment there between stimulus and response. There's a moment. And in that moment, there's a choice. And so I love to, you know, think about what does that mean? And can we actually slow down enough that we can feel discomfort in our body? We can feel even fear in our body and still choose to think and then to act. And sometimes that action means don't do it at all, right? Or leap out of the way or, you know, say no, because saying no is a courageous act in, in some cases, just as much as saying yes is. So it's not always about leaping out in the middle of, you know, a, a scary situation. But in many cases, we let that emotional response guide us. And we say, this can't be good for us because it feels uncomfortable. And it's yes. that, yeah, that's the intriguing time. That's the intriguing yeah. time. The, the, it's, it's so interesting. And, and I think the big discovery for me, because I read so much and I always approach things sort of intellectually that I wasn't realizing that my body was trying to tell me some stuff. And I started doing EMDR with my therapist, which was, and everyone I've talked to, by the way, many people do that. And, and I have yet to find someone who didn't say it changed their life materially. Totally. Yeah. And, and, and that whole mind body connection and being able to, you know, again, I, I have a meditation practice. I, I think a meditation practice is, is it's not required, but it's so helpful in being able to slow your body down and your, and your mind down and say, is this something really that I, that I want to do? And I mean, I can almost imagine how people feel when they get on the improv stage for the first time and they know they're going to be up in front of other people. They don't know what's going to happen. They're clearly going to have to react. I mean, this, to me, that takes karaoke up. 20 notches. I mean, it's karaoke. At least you know what you're going to sing and you, you yeah. may be terrible, but you're, you know, you know what you're going to sing in your work. It's so powerful because you don't know what, what the person before you is going to say, and you don't know the scenario you're going to be in. It's such a beautiful, powerful experience. And, and so to be able to lead your life in that way, where yes, you're feeling uncomfortable. Yes, this is new. Yes, this is a little scary, but you're going to say yes anyway. And, and the whole knowledge, and I, there's a whole chapter in the book where I, I kind of go a little bit deeper into the, into the neurobiology of fear, mm -hmm. because it's so important for us to know that it is our friend. And then instead of running from it, we can kind of dance with it. Mm -hmm. We can, we can have it as our dance partner and, and still walk through life or dance through life with it. We're not kicking it away. We're not kicking it aside. We're certainly not conquering it, but we're actually allowing it to sit by us or dance with us as we move through life. It's a lot like stress. 
which is you can put a value proposition if you want to, but it is there. And and by the way, peak performers are using stress. So that that is absolutely what happens. So it is that it's that it's that getting comfortable with fear and also getting comfortable with failure. And I think in improv, I, what I would say is maybe the the biggest key is this idea of ensemble. And the idea in that is that you know that the person across from you is there to save you and vice versa. Totally. If you can go, if you, and, and relate, and what we know, of course, science also tells us is how vital relationships are. And so, like, if you can seek to have as many sort of pro-social, um, good, strong relationships, you are ensuring uh, longer living, uh, greater health, uh, greater success, financial security, all those things. I mean, this is that Harvard study, the grant study has been going on for 80 years, and that's what it shows. It, absolutely. It, 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 it is the number one determinant of a happy, healthy life. And I would argue that one of the key aspects of building strong social relationships and strong social bonds, as Bob Waldinger, who now runs that, that study, talks about is vulnerability. Mm. It's curiosity. Yep. You know, it's not about the superficial stuff. It's certainly not about the number of friends you have. It's no. about the quality and depth of friendships you have. And vulnerability, I mean, we could talk Brene Brown for the for the rest of the episode and five more of them, but vulnerability creates connection and vulnerability requires courage. It's yeah. really hard to be to be vulnerable. And so, you know, in, in so many aspects of life, if we have the courage and the bravery to be able to be vulnerable and open to, to share our flaws, to share our, our concerns, our, and even our dreams and our wishes that may feel silly. I talk about in the book that I've always wanted to be a rock star and I actually go like super deep into how incredibly corny that feels. And, <laughs> and it was so hard to write and it's so hard to see it there. But it's true. And, and for me, being a rock star taps into feelings of being heard. It, sure. it, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily fame. It's do people care about what comes out of my mouth? And, and so, you know, tapping into things like that and doing it vulnerably really connects you with other people. And as that study says, that's what leads to a happy, healthier life. Uh, the guy who introduced me to positive psychology was Scott Barry Kaufman, um, who worked for Marty Seligman. And uh, I just interviewed Scotty about his new book uh, called Choose Growth, which is like a workbook around transcendence. And we got onto this topic, and, and it's something that's been floating through the air lately for me and for him, which is recognizing that identity threat is probably the factor we're actually talking about in a lot of this this stuff that that when when we are feel like we're not seen or we're not valued or not heard or any of those things and that strikes at the heart of identity i'm telling you folks that is why we have the political discourse we have in this country right now it's about totally identity, right? agree totally yeah. agree and and when you lock your ego, your sense of self in a box and you don't open it up and you let it sit there on a shelf I tell a story in the book about a woman. Um, I took a workshop with a, with a wonderful writer and she told the story of being asked in her early sixties, what her favorite color was. And she said unequivocally, my favorite color is green. It's just green. It's my favorite color. And being an introspective person, she kind of thought about it and said, well, <laughs> why do I feel like green is my favorite color? And she actually traced it back 
And it was in kindergarten, there was a boy she had a crush on whose favorite color was green. Mm. And to impress him and to get in good with this little guy who was sitting next to her, she said, oh, green is my favorite color too. And then never thought about it again for all of those years. So we all have these preconceptions of who we are and what, you know, our, our resume or our CV becomes our identity and we lock ourselves into these silos. And, you know, I think that you're absolutely right. The, the threat to that is what is causing these huge amounts, not only of, of, of bridges that aren't being built and, and, and huge walls that are being built, but this, it, 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 it kills curiosity. Yeah. yeah. And it kills connection because to connect, I need to listen to you and you need to listen to me. And I need to be okay with you saying, you know, I believe this and I'm, I need to be okay with saying, you know what? You're right. You're right. Like I get it. I never thought about it that way. And that, and that is, that is so integral into overcoming the amount of fear and polarization that are, that are out there in the world. And I think it's important to acknowledge that like, this this idea can coexist with tearing down oppressive systems. This can coexist with understanding that there's a problem with the prisons in this country. I mean, all the like, there, yes, there are massive systemic issues, but we are still human beings on this planet together uh, who have actually done remarkable things g- given anything. Right? It's amazing that we like aren't crashing into each other outside when we get in our cars. Um, and I think it's just like it becomes a zero sum game too often. And then, and then, and that's when everyone digs their heels in. Absolutely. Um, it's funny. One of our first scare your soul ambassadors, I, I gave her the same task that I gave Johanna. You can tell that, you know, people probably yeah. don't want to be around me very often because I'm constantly right. asking them to do things <laughs> that are uncomfortable. But yeah. one of our first ambassadors um, is, is really an amazing person. She's, she's tough. She's strong. Um, she's a dancer. She, she's just like untouchable. And I said to her, I want you to, to come up with a challenge for yourself. I want you to do something uncomfortable. And she, she based her first comment to me was, I'm not afraid of anything. And I said, Oh no, you are. And come back to me in a week. So (laughs) she came back to me in a week and she said to me, her courage action, the thing that she came up with that would have pushed her the most was to hold hands with somebody and walk through a mall. Mm. And I paused and thought, how in the hell is that a courageous act? And so I said, that that's like nothing to me. You know, why is that courageous to you? And she told me the story, and it's also in the book, that she comes, she comes from an abusive home. She was raised in an abusive home. And for her, touching somebody else, hugging somebody else meant pain. It meant anxiety. Mm. And she never... She never did it. She never, she never hugged. She never. So for her holding hands and walking through a mall for five minutes was the same as jumping out of an airplane at at 14,000 feet was for me or singing in front of a restaurant. Now here's the interesting part. And I think the, 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 the intriguing part is I got just as inspired by her courage expression as she was of mine. It, there was no judgment there. It wasn't like there was some scale that said that mine was more courageous than hers. And that's when I began to realize that building a community around this work was mm-hmm. so important. And I think, you know, if anything has 
really enlivened the work that we do in Scare Your Soul. It isn't the fact that, you know, I create challenges and it and it changes people's lives. I, I hope that it does push people and, and they get better. But it is this sense that you're doing it with a group of people who, as you said, are like your comrades. They're there to support you, save you, help you, be there for you, applaud you. And when we're doing courage work, the the thought that there are people around the world that are doing the same thing that you're doing is so powerful and it's so connecting. And it really allows us to kind of push through that last barrier and to, you know, in an improv uh, metaphor, you know, like get up on stage, right. And, and do the things that we need to do to be the best humans that we can be. So that is, that's such a powerful part of this work. Well, I think, too, people don't often think about this nuance around identity, which we're talking about, which is identity does not exist in, in not related to others. It is at, it only exists in related to others. So that the fact the fact is, it, it does you can it, it matters what other people how other people talk about you. It matters how other people see you. So all that's true. OK, in a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story. But before that, I want to tell you a quick thing because you bring her up in the book. But uh, when when COVID hit. Um, and I was working with, I was just about re, uh, I had a small team that was redoing curriculum for all, all our corporate deliveries that we do. And we do a lot and we had just millions of dollars of live workshops set up. Uh, so that all stops and we have to figure out this pivot. And, um, the first person to call me was a, a friend of mine who'd gone from Yale exec ed and she was now at a major software company. And she's like, do you have any? virtual workshops on resilience. And I'm like, 100%. And and we didn't. Uh, but I mean, we had done it live. Uh, and so I started sort of collecting uh, uh, work in this area. And we had some stuff ourselves. And then as I went online, I was like, oh, great. There's this woman, Maria Serwa. Um, am I pronouncing her name right? Yes, you are. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, re- I reached out and I booked her on the podcast, but my secret intention was to mine her for, for information that I would do later, <laughs> which I totally did. So she's just learning about that now, but she's one of your mentors. She is one of my mentors. She, she did something that I think, first of all, I will never forget it. I mean, she's this brilliant, beautiful soul. She's wise. She's deep. And uh, I was given the opportunity to do a TEDx talk and she found out about it. And she called me, she was faculty on a program that I was a part of. And she said, I'm flying to come be with you. And I want to coach you through it. Uh, on, she wouldn't let me remunerate her, wouldn't let me pay a dime. She, I live in Cleveland, Ohio. She flew to Cleveland. She sat um, with, uh, with my partner that, that I was doing the, the TED talk with and and it was because of her that I think that TED Talk um, really sang. And it was that selfless act of just helping another human being in a moment where she knew she could be helpful. And I will never I will never forget it. And and I'm so glad that you know her. And um, she, by the way, has a wonderful um, TED Talk herself. I encourage all of your listeners to to Google Marie Maria Sirwa. S I R O I S and and find her and and connect with her and learn from her. She's amazing. Oh, I love it. All right. We always end the podcast with a yes and story. Do you have one for us? I do. I do. Um, I I was sitting in my office and I got a phone call from my brother in LA and he said, I need you to close the door. So I closed the door and he said, I just asked Lily, his girlfriend at the time to marry me. And we want you to officiate the wedding. (laughs) And I said, 
Hell no. <laughs> no, no, and no. And you need to find somebody else. I don't, it could be a priest, a rabbi, uh, doesn't uh, pull someone off the street. I, I, I can't do it. I won't do it justice. And he said, no, we, we really want you. And I, I thought about it and I said, yes. Mm-hmm. I said, and I'm going to get my license and I'm going to do this for other people too. Mm-hmm. And so since then, I have married a lot of people. I've officiated <laughs> a lot of weddings, including marrying a couple at, as a surprise in a very large and credit bar that, wow. um, that is maybe one of the most memorable. I still get emails from people like seven years later who were there that night when I very surprisingly married a couple that could not afford a wedding and the the people in the bar became their bridal party and we crowd crowdfunded their honeymoon and we we married them that night. So my my yes and story is not wanting to marry my brother and sister-in-law and then officiating a bunch of weddings afterwards that have just made my life even that much more incredible. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I just got my license uh, a couple oh. months ago because I was asked to officiate a wedding. They haven't set a date yet, but it's going to be in the new year. It'll be my first. Uh, and it was funny because like, you can't write the yes and book and like say no to stuff. This is this is the bane of my existence. It's it's what my <laughs> children are constantly like. Oh, thanks. Like yes and right. right. so uh, it's actually, but it ends up being a good a good trap to be in. Uh, the book is called Scare Your Soul: Seven Powerful Principles for Harnessing Fear and Living Your Most Courageous Life. Scott Simon, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Getting to Yes and podcast is produced by the Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.